Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 40 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July 2012 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Our lead article reports on a study in which patients who had taken antidepressants in the past were examined for the effects of these drugs on the course of their bipolar I disorder. The authors point to a recent meta-analysis that suggests that the guideline recommended treatment of adding antidepressants to mood stabilizers is no more effective than adding a placebo to treatment of acute episodes of bipolar depression. Elsewhere, antidepressants have been implicated in the increase of manic switching or cycle acceleration. The study included 108 bipolar one outpatients. A detailed retrospective examination of their prior course of illness was conducted. Prospective long-term response to naturalistic treatment for six months was the primary outcome measure. The results uncovered three variables independently associated with prospective non-response. A greater number of prior antidepressant trials, a history of 20 or more prior mood episodes, and comorbid anxiety disorder. The authors conclude that randomized clinical trials comparing antidepressants to other options for bipolar depression are desperately needed to more definitively inform clinical practice and to facilitate better treatment for the most difficult phase of the disorder. They note that until such randomized data become available, it would appear prudent for clinicians to avoid antidepressant monotherapy as well as antidepressants adjunct to mood stabilizers in favor of other treatment options. Breathing training is a common component of cognitive behavioral therapy for panic disorder. Ordinarily, breathing training tries to teach anxious clients to reduce their hyperventilation, which implies raising their end-tidal partial pressure of carbon dioxide, or PCO2. However, teaching them to mildly hyperventilate, thereby lowering their PCO2, can be justified by the false suffocation alarm theory of panic. Kim and colleagues investigated what makes breathing training effective in a controlled trial of two opposing breathing therapies. Their study was supported by the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Veterans Affairs. They randomly assigned consecutive patients with panic disorder to one of three groups. One group was trained to raise its PCO2 using feedback from a handheld device. A second group was trained to lower its PCO2 in the same way, and a third group received one of these treatments after an eight-week delay. The investigators found that both types of breathing training effectively reduced severity of panic disorder one month after treatment, and that treatment effects were maintained at six-month follow-up. Physiologic measurements of respiration at follow-up showed that patients had learned to alter their PCO2 levels and respiration rates as they had been taught in therapy.
Thus, according to the authors, clinical improvement must have depended on elements common to both breathing therapies rather than the effects of these therapies on carbon dioxide. These common elements may have been such things as changed beliefs and expectancies, exposure to ominous bodily sensations, and attention to regular and slow breathing. New evidence reported in this month's CME offering suggests that children with ADHD may be at significant risk for functional, psychosocial, and educational impairments as adults. The study examined a sample of children with or without ADHD and estimated the risk for psychopathology and functional impairment in adulthood. The 16-year prospective follow-up study included 140 boys with and 120 boys without ADHD. The study was funded in part by the Lilly Foundation and the Pediatric Psychopharmacology Council Fund of Massachusetts General Hospital. The results showed that men who had ADHD as children were at significantly higher risk than controls for a wide range of adverse psychosocial, educational, occupational, and cognitive outcomes. These outcomes occurred independently of psychiatric comorbidity. The consistency in findings between these prospective results and the results derived from retrospective study of adults with ADHD strongly supports the syndromatic continuity between pediatric and adult ADHD. The findings further indicate that many impairments associated with ADHD in adult life are due to ADHD itself and not to psychiatric comorbidity. These long-term prospective findings provide additional evidence for the high morbidity associated with ADHD across the life cycle, and they highlight the importance of early recognition of this disorder and support of efforts toward prevention and early intervention to help mitigate these adverse outcomes. To receive CME credit for this article, read the full article at psychiatrist.com and take the post-test. Dr. Henningsberg and colleagues recently conducted a randomized controlled trial of the investigational antidepressant LUAA21004 in adults with major depressive disorder. This investigational drug is thought to work through two modes of action, reuptake inhibition and receptor activity. In the eight-week trial funded by Takeda, 560 subjects from multiple countries outside the United States received 1 milligram, 5 milligrams, or 10 milligrams of the investigational drug or placebo. The primary endpoint was change in score from baseline to 8 weeks on the 24-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. The investigators also looked at depressive symptoms, safety, and tolerability. They found a statistically significant reduction from baseline in the Hamilton Depression score at week 8 for the 10-milligram dose versus placebo. After eight weeks of treatment, all doses produced improvement in depressive symptoms and most separated from placebo by week 2. There were no significant safety concerns, and the most frequent adverse effects were nausea, headache, and dizziness. 
Further studies are being conducted to determine the optimal dose of LUAA21004 for the treatment of major depressive disorder in adults. Although exercise is thought to be associated with low rates of mental illness, this relationship has not been adequately studied. Dr. Dakwar and colleagues analyzed data collected between 2001 and 2005 from the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. Their objective was to determine whether the nationally recommended amount of vigorous exercise is cross-sectionally associated with lower prevalence and incidence of various psychiatric disorders as well as higher remission rates. Nearly 24,000 non-disabled U.S. adults under 65 years of age were categorized into three groups. Those who followed the national recommendations and exercised vigorously at least 20 minutes on three or more days per week. Those who engaged in some vigorous exercise but less than the recommended amount and those who engaged in no vigorous exercise. The prevalence, incidence, and remission of substance use disorder and anxiety, depressive and bipolar disorders for each group were determined and compared. The results were unexpected in that individuals engaging in vigorous exercise were more likely than non-exercisers to develop a psychiatric disorder and were less likely to attain remission from a disorder during the time period between waves 1 and 2 of NISARC. Bipolar 2 disorder and alcohol dependence most consistently and strongly accounted for these differences. The only disorder inversely associated with any level of exercise was dysthymia. Besides indicating that the complex relationship between exercise and psychiatric disorders deserves further study, these findings raise the possibility that reward-related vulnerabilities associated with bipolar and substance use disorders, such as increased reward-oriented behavior, impulsivity, and sensation-seeking, may influence the pursuit of natural rewards, such as exercise. Future prospective trials should further investigate these unexpected findings, as they suggest that the relationship between exercise and mental illness is far more complex than previously believed. This study was supported by the National Institutes of Health and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Some studies indicate that individuals with chronic major depressive disorder, defined as having at least one episode lasting two years or more, do not have as good a response to antidepressant treatment as individuals who have shorter depressive episodes. In this study, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, Dr. Sung and colleagues wanted to determine whether patients with chronic depression would have a greater remission rate when treated with a single antidepressant medication, the usual standard of care, versus being treated with a combination of medications immediately. They also looked at differences in demographic characteristics, clinical features, side effects, and tolerability between groups of patients with chronic and non-chronic depression. The results showed that patients with chronic depression had higher rates of co-occurring medical and psychiatric problems, 
greater impairment of socio-occupational functioning, and lower quality of life. Treatment outcomes, tolerability, and side effects were not significantly different between the two groups. Approximately 35 to 40 percent of participants in each group experienced full remission of depression by 12 weeks, and 41 to 50 percent reached remission by 28 weeks. And there were no significant differences in remission rates for those taking a single antidepressant compared to those taking a combination of medications. Short-term randomized controlled trials show the efficacy of psychostimulants such as Lizdexamphetamine for control of ADHD symptoms, and open-label studies demonstrate longer-term safety and effectiveness. To look at whether patients benefit from long-term maintenance therapy, Matthew Brahms and colleagues conducted a double-blind, randomized withdrawal study of Lizdexamphetamine. The study, which was funded by Shire, enrolled adults with ADHD who had been taking Lizdexamphetamine for at least six months. After maintaining response to open-label treatment for three weeks, 116 of the patients were randomized to either continue Lizdexamphetamine or switch to placebo for six weeks. Relapse was defined as an increase of 50% in the ADHD symptom score and a worsening by two or more points in the clinical global impression severity score. In the withdrawal phase, 75% of placebo participants, or 45 of 60, had a relapse of symptoms, most within the first two weeks. Fewer than 9% of the Lizdexamphetamine participants had a relapse. The researchers concluded that while each patient is unique, continued therapy is important for maintaining a therapeutic response, and patients should be monitored closely if treatment is discontinued. Dysthymic disorder, or chronic low-grade depression, is a common and disabling condition affecting as many as 5% of Americans. The disorder significantly impairs quality of life for the people affected by it, including work functioning and relationships. Relatively few studies of medication treatment for dysthymic disorder have been published, and no previous studies exist in which the potent serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors are compared to placebo. In this Eli Lilly-funded study from the New York State Psychiatric Institute in Columbia University, 60 adults were treated with duloxetine or placebo over 10 weeks. The duloxetine dosage began at 30 milligrams a day and was gradually increased to as much as 120 milligrams per day. Outcomes for the two groups were compared on ratings of depression, overall improvement, general functioning, and social adjustment. The investigators found that duloxetine was well tolerated by study patients. Also, duloxetine patients had a significantly better outcome than the placebo group on doctors' ratings of depression in the percentage of patients whose depression went into remission and on both patients' and doctors' ratings of overall improvement. However, other ratings, including social adjustment, did not differ between medication and placebo at week 10. 
The authors conclude that duloxetine showed benefit on many, though not all, study measures, and that it may be an effective option for the treatment of this disabling disorder. This review on psychiatric symptoms of systemic lupus erythematosus found that cognitive dysfunction and depression were the most common psychiatric manifestations. Psychosis is relatively rare. It is present in less than 5% of lupus patients, but it may be the first symptom. Unfortunately, patients with lupus are often unaware of their cognitive impairment. Hence, they do not report it and do not seek treatment. Overlooking psychiatric symptoms may have severe consequences for patients. They face decreased quality of life, disability, loss of employment, and disruption of supportive relationships. Unfortunately, there are no evidence-based guidelines for the treatment of psychiatric symptoms in lupus. There are several theories about the pathogenesis of psychiatric symptoms in lupus. Genetic and environmental factors may play a role. For example, ultraviolet light can cause exacerbation of psychosis, and endogenous retroviruses and medications can worsen the clinical picture. In addition, a patient's reaction to the illness may result in anxiety and depression. Currently known biomarkers, which are nonspecific to lupus, indicate inflammation, microglial activation, ischemia, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, and blood-brain barrier dysfunction. Diagnosing neuropsychiatric lupus is a challenging task. The authors recommend that if physicians have a female patient with new-onset depression, memory problems, attention deficit, or psychosis, and a family history of lupus, Checking the anti-nuclear antibody level may help in making the correct diagnosis. Psychiatric symptoms presenting more than two years prior to the diagnosis of lupus are considered not to be lupus-related. In a multinational study sponsored by Servier, researchers evaluated the efficacy and tolerability of the antidepressant agomelatine in the prevention of relapse in patients with generalized anxiety disorder. Patients who responded to a 16-week course of open-label agomelatine treatment at doses of 25 to 50 milligrams a day were randomly assigned to receive continuation treatment with agomelatine or to be switched to placebo for 26 weeks. 113 patients continued with agomelatine and 114 received placebo. The time to relapse during this maintenance period was measured, and the estimated risk of relapse was calculated. Results showed that after the initial response to aglomelatine, the proportion of patients who relapsed was lower among those who continued with aglomelatine than among those who switched to placebo. That is 19.5% versus 30.7%. Accordingly, the risk of relapse over time was significantly lower for those who continued agomelatine than for those who switched to placebo. Interestingly, 
This lower risk of relapse was particularly marked in patients who had higher symptom severity at baseline. These results indicate that agomelatine is a promising option for longer-term treatment of generalized anxiety disorder. The drug was well-tolerated throughout the study. The authors point out that the data from this study supplement earlier work demonstrating the efficacy and tolerability of aglomelatine in the short-term treatment of this order, as well as in the short-term and longer-term treatment of major depression, the most frequent comorbid condition. Finally, the authors note that in clinical practice, Agomelatine can be reasonably predicted to have at least an equivalent efficacy to that of other available treatments. Are symptoms of major depression in elderly patients associated with later development of Alzheimer's dementia? It is already well known that depressive symptoms and Alzheimer's dementia co-occur quite frequently. What is less well-known is the direction of causality between depression and dementia. The authors of this article designed a study to better understand the relationship between these two illnesses. This study was supported by the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute of Aging Research in Vienna. The authors extracted data from a community-based cohort study of all 75-year-old inhabitants of two districts in Vienna, Austria. They examined 437 non-demented and non-previously depressed individuals who were followed for five years. The primary outcome was whether the presence of specific depressive symptoms at baseline predicted development of Alzheimer's dementia after five years of follow-up. The authors found that of nine typical depressive symptoms, only loss of interest at baseline was predictive of the later occurrence of possible or probable Alzheimer's dementia. They concluded that the loss of interest might be a prodrome of Alzheimer's dementia. The other symptoms of depression seem mostly to be symptoms of genuine depression. Analogous to the need for physical exercise to build muscle mass with steroid use, the true benefit of pharmacologic intervention to improve cognition in schizophrenia may not be evident without regular cognitive enrichment. Clinical trials assessing the neurocognitive effects of new medications may require engagement in cognitive remediation exercises to stimulate the benefit potential. However, the feasibility of large-scale multi-site studies using cognitive remediation at traditional clinical trial sites has not been established. In this study, supported by the National Institute of Mental Health and Posit Science Corporation, 53 patients across nine study sites who had dsm 4 schizophrenia were randomized to cognitive remediation, including 40 one-hour sessions of the Posit Science Brain Fitness Auditory Training Program with weekly bridging groups or to a control condition with computer games and weekly healthy lifestyle groups. Within the three-month enrollment period, 53 of a projected 54 patients were enrolled, and 41, or 77%, met criteria for study completion. 
31 patients completed all 40 sessions, and all patients completed all primary outcome measures. After 20 sessions, patients in the cognitive remediation condition demonstrated mean cognitive composite score improvements that were about 0.37 standard deviations greater than in the control group. This study suggests that performing multi-site clinical trials of cognitive remediation at traditional clinical trial sites appears feasible. Be sure to read the accompanying commentary by Dr. Skular, which provides an engaging discussion of this study and of the topic in general. Schizophrenia patients exhibit gender differences in their clinical presentation, neurocognitive impairment, clinical course, and treatment outcome. The objective of this study was to compare gender differences in clinical features and cognitive functioning in Han Chinese inpatients with first episode or chronic schizophrenia. The investigators compared each of these two patient groups to matched healthy controls. They examined sociodemographic characteristics, smoking behavior, and measurements on the repeatable battery for the assessment of neuropsychological status, or R-band scale. Patients were also rated on the positive and negative syndrome scale. The results showed that in both patient groups, that is, first episode and chronic, Schizophrenia first occurred at a significantly earlier age in male patients than in female patients. The paranoid subtype of schizophrenia was more common in female patients only in the chronic schizophrenia group. Cigarette smoking was more common in male patients from both patient groups. Among men, more chronic schizophrenia patients smoked compared to controls while among women, fewer chronic schizophrenia patients smoked compared to controls. Female patients in the chronic group had more severe positive symptoms and general psychopathological symptoms, whereas male patients had more severe negative symptoms. By contrast, the first episode group showed no gender differences in symptoms and severity. Both first episode and chronic schizophrenia patients performed worse than controls on most cognitive tasks. The R-band's attention, delayed memory, and immediate memory indexes were less impaired in female versus male patients in the chronic group, and the first episode patients showed no gender differences on these measures. The results of this study suggest that chronic schizophrenia patients exhibit notable gender differences for age at onset, smoking, symptom severity, and cognitive function favoring women, but that first episode patients show few gender differences. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is often thought of as a disorder of childhood but it may affect as many as 9 million adults in the United States. Stimulants, such as methylphenidate and amphetamine-based products, are the main form of drug treatment, but may be associated with a lack of response in some patients, as well as side effects and possibility of abuse. Recently, attention has been focused on experimental drugs called histamine H3 receptor antagonists, or inverse agonists, as a possible new treatment for ADHD. 
H3 receptor antagonists, or inverse agonists, increase the release of brain histamine, as well as other brain chemicals involved in cognition, and they have been shown to be effective in some animal models relevant to ADHD. Herring and colleagues conducted a randomized controlled crossover study funded by Merck to explore whether one particular H3 receptor inverse agonist, MK0249, might be effective in adults with ADHD. The number of patients included in the study, 72, was large enough and the duration of the study, four weeks, was long enough to likely detect an effect if one was present. A 10 milligram dose of MK0249 was chosen for the study so as to occupy a high percentage of H3 receptors. The results show that MK0249 was not effective whereas a standard treatment, methylphenidate, which was included as a comparator, was effective. The findings of this study suggest disappointingly that H3 receptor inverse agonists are not likely to be a useful treatment for ADHD. Future work is necessary to examine other non-stimulants with varied mechanisms of action. Little is known currently about the outcomes of cognitive deficits and bipolar disorder. To gather information on potential changes to the brain that can occur in bipolar patients, Dr. Torrent and colleagues evaluated the long-term course of cognitive deficits and their clinical correlates in bipolar disorder. Bipolar euthymic outpatients and healthy controls were assessed neuropsychologically at study baseline. The primary outcome was change in neuropsychological performance in the patient group. At follow-up, attention had improved slightly and executive function had worsened. Illness duration and baseline subdepressive symptoms were associated with poor performance in executive function. Subdepressive symptoms at endpoint were also associated with poor functioning. The best predictor of low functioning was verbal memory dysfunction at baseline. The main conclusion of the study is that neurocognitive impairment appears to remain stable across time, with the exception of worsening of executive measures. Therefore, early intervention strategies aimed at reducing cognitive dysfunction in bipolar patients are needed. Mental disorders exact a large burden on both individuals and societies and represent a significant portion of health care expenses. The authors of this article were interested in how public funding for research on mental disorders compared to the societal costs of these conditions and whether research funding levels differed in France, the United Kingdom, and the United States. To determine the amount of public and non-profit funding for mental health research, the authors conducted surveys, examined agency websites, and analyzed publicly available documentation. The authors found sizable differences between the countries in funding for research on mental disorders. The United States vastly outspends France and the United Kingdom on mental health research, both per capita and as a proportion of the total health research dollars. 
While France spends 2% of its health research budget on mental disorders, the United Kingdom spends 7% and the United States spends 16%. In France and the United States, all but a small percentage of this funding comes from government, whereas in the United Kingdom, 14% of research funding comes from charitable organizations. The authors conclude that regardless of funding source, All countries spend less on mental health research than may be warranted, especially considering the expected return on investment from research in mental health. Bipolar disorder is characterized by repeated relapses of manic, depressive, or mixed episode. In a study funded by Eli Lilly, Dr. Toen and colleagues sought to identify moderators that precede and influence other variables to affect relapse, and mediators that explain how and why a second variable affects relapse. Bipolar 1 patients who were in remission after acute therapy with a combination of olanzapine and lithium were randomized to receive lithium or olanzapine for up to one year. The investigators then performed post hoc analyses to see what predicted relapse during this period. For the group receiving lithium treatment, the variables associated with relapse were country of residence, smoking status, previous episode history, and previous lithium use. For olanzapine-treated patients, the variables associated with relapse included smoking status, previous episode history, and depression severity at baseline. For the lithium-treated group, no mediators or moderators were identified among the relapse variables. For the olanzapine-treated group, Several baseline variables, such as previous number of manic or depressive episodes, operated through severity of depressive symptoms prior to remission to affect relapse rate. The effect of a patient's pre-remission depressive symptoms on outcome was moderated by the polarity of the first episode, whether manic, depressive, or mixed. In this month's installment of our new online-only Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade offers advice for situations in which the metabolism of drugs differs from what is expected. Depending on the situation, this can lead to decreased efficacy or increased side effects. Dr. Andrade also considers possible alternative drugs that may be useful. If you are listening from outside the table of contents, just go to psychiatrist.com and type in the keyword practical to read the column and join the discussion. In this issue, we highlight a case report by Jason Schiffman and Michael Gitlin of a woman with severe refractory bipolar depression treated with adjunctive oxycodone with excellent antidepressant efficacy and without induction of mania or opioid dependence. They also discuss differences among the various opioids relative to use in refractory bipolar depression. Finally, Be sure to check out this issue's letters and book reviews and participate in the interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for this and much, much more from the July issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thank you for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. 
I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.